Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. We are so happy you're here. I just have to say, um, you've always been like a really good looking church, but with your masks off, it's just like that much better. You guys just look amazing today. I am so happy that we don't have to wear masks anymore. Um, thank you so much uh, for complying these last couple of years as we've been wanting to do our part to love our neighbors well, and especially the vulnerable in our community. But it's uh, so amazing to see your smiling faces. Now, um, uh, if you're new, we are Jesus people. Uh, we want to examine the scriptures and not just talk well about Jesus, but actually live well and live into the way of Jesus. And so one of the ways we do that is just sort of working through the Bible exegetically or line by line, just not trying to have our own wisdom or our own ideas, but actually go to the ancient wisdom of scripture and, that is alive and, and, and really walk in it together. So uh, would you please stand with me? We're going to have a reading from the scripture right now. So this is uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 14. And this is, uh, this is Paul writing. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. All right. Yeah, welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so there is a lot here. And again, if you're new, um, we're so glad that you, that you made it. Um, and you're sort of joining us like mid-thought and mid-series. So let me try and catch you up as quickly as possible. The letter to the Galatians is a passionate appeal for the people of Jesus to come back to center and redevote themselves to family love. That's what the whole letter is about. So Paul, if you're familiar, has been sharing the gospel throughout the regions of Galatia and this new multi-ethnic family formed just like Jesus intended and just like the Hebrew scriptures had promised. There was this really vibrant, multicultural, multi-ethnic church that had formed. But within a few months of that church is founding, some wrong-headed leaders from within the church were threatening to break it all apart over the old dividing lines of Jewish tradition. Now, it used to be that evangelicals in the modern West, like me, looked back on this specific controversy in Galatians 2 pretentiously, like, Oh, look at how foolish those first century Christians were. How could you possibly allow secondary values to get into the way of loving each other and working together for the mission and the advance of God's kingdom? That's how we used to kind of carry ourselves when it comes to scriptures like this. But then 2020 happened. 
And it became abundantly clear that we're still just as vulnerable to toxic disunity today. And we're actually still, unfortunately, willing to withhold our familial devotion to one another over things that don't matter in light of the cross and in light of the return of Jesus. So uh, just by way of example, have you noticed that we whisper a lot more than we used to? We whisper a lot since the pandemic because our views are more polarizing than they used to be. Um, If you haven't started whispering more, maybe you should consider it actually. It's a way that you might not alienate like half of the people in whatever crowded coffee shop that you're in. It's just a symptom of the times that we're living in. Um, But our big prayer, our like audacious prayer through this letter to the Galatians is that God would uh, purify his church from feelings of superiority. And it's really easy for us to like hear that and go, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of like stuck up Christians out there, super judgmental and feel morally superior. And it's like, yes, of course, that's true. But the point of the series is to actually look inward at ourselves and to say, where have we been a part of the problem. So that's what we're also praying and asking God to help us with, that the Lord would guide us to confess where you and I have been contributing to the problem of dividing the church over things that are not the gospel. And then finally, we're praying that we, he would empower us to be peacemakers, that we would know how to make peace and to redevote ourselves to the new multi-ethnic family that Jesus has always had in mind. These are some big prayers, I understand. But I think that God is really eager to answer these prayers um, because they're directly in line with his heart and, and the scriptures. So today what we're doing is we're sort of traveling deeper, if you will, into what this means for the church and how you can be like a wise and mature and like peaceful presence from within the sort of messy, far from perfect family of God that we all find ourselves in. The goal is that we would actually be a part of the solution and make peace from within the sort of broken system. And what we're going to find is that uh, thinking well about family devotion as gospel or being able to like ace the exam, if you will, is not the same thing or nearly as important as living the gospel well. So what if we can pass the test if it doesn't actually translate into our actual lives? For too long, the church has been filled with people who claim a lot of knowledge, but are just stuck up and arrogant and prideful about that. That's not how the love of Jesus works, and that's not how wisdom, according to the scripture, works. Wisdom, according to the scripture, it brings humility, it brings gentleness, kindness, and all of the good stuff. In the language of 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all knowledge but do not have what? Love. It profits me nothing. Amen. Amen. In other words, talk is cheap, love is an action, and let's start getting after it together. We're also going to find that even the best of us can lose sight of the gospel. We can focus on the wrong things and even fall into hypocrisy. Um, I know that so far what I've said to you sounds a little bit intense, and I guess it kind of is because this passage is intense, but I promise to also say nice and kind things too because there's a lot of really hopeful stuff in this passage that I know we're going to get to as well. So um, some background, how do we understand this? So uh, in these verses, Paul is rehashing a disagreement that happened 2,000 years ago after a guy sat down at the wrong table during a church potluck. 
That's what's going on in this passage. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, what does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with me forging a multi-ethnic, diverse community right from within the culture and the bedrock of Bend, Oregon in the 2020s? And that's a fair question. But I think that the answer is that this story has a lot to say about it. Because that church in Galatia, or that church gathering in Galatia, is a condensed symbol. A condensed symbol of this whole controversy that existed then and exists even up until our present time about who truly belongs in the family of God. A condensed symbol is like the shot heard around the world in the 17th century, or 18th century, excuse me, where a few Bostonians square off with British troops in in protest of the king's taxes. And somebody, uh, nobody knows who, pulls the trigger and this little battle takes place, and people on both sides, the, the, uh, the, the Bostonians and, and, and the British, uh, there are some who die. It's a single event that symbolizes this rising tension with the English that have been happening for several years, and it sets America off on her journey towards independence. So the whole world that we know has been shaped by that one condensed symbol, that one bullet flying across the battlefield. Another condensed symbol is Rosa Parks, refusing to sit at the back of the bus. It's an isolated decision by a single woman that symbolizes an entire movement of resistance to the evil idea that her family is somehow second class because of the color of her skin. And, and, and she's saying no. It symbolizes the whole movement. That's what a condensed symbol is. So Paul confronting Peter, or Cephas as he's referred to in this passage, uh, at the church potluck, that too is a condensed symbol about who is welcome in the family of God. It's a commentary about all of these tribal identities that they had back then and we carry even until the present day. The in-group and the out-group dilemma. It's also like the big line in the sand moment for the church about the equal footing that we all share in the grace of Christ. And Paul is going after it. So I want to show you sort of how it all works and then hopefully also uh, share some wisdom about what we can draw from this and how we can let it travel deeper into our lives and be people of peace. Sound good? Awesome. So verse 1 says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Okay, so a couple of things to notice. First of all, uh, don't confuse Paul for a chill, normal guy because he's not. He, he, he's clearly a man of intensity and he faced violence and outrage his entire career and his personality was sort of built to handle it. Uh, it's verses like these that make me wonder if Paul would be like a fun hang. My, my, my guess is Probably not. Uh, you all know people who are like super easygoing. I think about my friend Luke and my wife Grace and Ryan. All of you guys are these like super fun, easygoing, chill people. You're a great hang. People like Paul, crazy intense, have a lot to say and a lot to contribute, but they can kind of be a lot. And my sense is that the first early church was beginning to realize how just how intense his personality was. But his passion and his warrior spirit is pointed in the right direction. He puts his life on the line countless times for the gospel. 
He is willing to go toe-to-toe with just about anyone, even Peter and Caesar, by the way, over the truth of the gospel. So uh, what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that we can, we can afford to have all kinds of opinions, all kinds of convictions, all kinds of virtues and values and all the rest, but you can only die on one hill. General Custer just had the one last stand. There's not multiple, right? Because we all know that uh, uh, people, we all know people who are passionate and intense without restraint, passionate without restraint. I used to be that guy. I sometimes still am, and I'm not proud to say that, but you know what I'm talking about. Those people who have carry with them intensity and are extremely driven and all of that without restraint. So restraint in this context is the willingness to accept that people are going to disagree. People are going to hold different viewpoints. They're going to do things that I wish they would not do. But restraint does not attempt to force my will upon other people. And this is what, what, what Paul grew to understand, is the channel his intensity in the right directions. You can't actually control people. It's not healthy, good, wise, or loving to control people. So we don't even attempt to force our will on one another. So um, I have opinions about almost everything. Just, just ask my wife, my daughter, who's then literally laughed out loud when I said that because she knows how true that it is. So I have opinions about almost everything. Uh, but you shouldn't uh, care what I think about how viruses spread, for example. I, I, I've read some articles, I have some opinions, and I've done a little bit of research, but this is not my area of expertise. And I don't get to force my opinion on you either. That's just not how the, the, the world works. See, our community, the, and by that I mean the community of Jesus people, we should be really ready, even excited, to keep secondary issues in their place where they belong for the sake of preserving unity. You should be looking for ways that you can forego your own preferences and opinions and even hold an opinion to yourself every once in a while for the sake of preserving and even um, forging unity in a polarizing time. It's like a counselor friend of mine likes to say, Andrew, it sounds like this is a good opportunity for you to practice acceptance. <laughs> it's really good advice that is so annoying, uh, but he's absolutely right. However, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the gospel, like Paul, we want to have the same kind of like unbending resolve to preserve its integrity. That's, this is what Paul is all about. This is where he lets his intensity run, run wild in a sense, and we're going to find as we go today. The truth about Jesus should really matter to us. It does really matter to us. And we are going to stay focused on that as a community. We are going to be a community that upholds the truth of the gospel, that encourages the lifestyle of the gospel. So we're willing to forego all kinds of things and surrender our opinions one to another or whatever, but we refuse to be pulled off of the plot of Jesus' eventual return and what his cross means for us and the forgiveness and the freedom that it brings. Are you with me so far? Okay, so um, I have a question for your reflection to just kind of meditate on this week. Do you have polarizing opinions about secondary issues that you need to show restraint for the sake of keeping your community focused and devoted to the gospel of Jesus? 
And the reason why I say that is because um, in our time, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's the rise of social media, it, it's probably many things, but we all have like somehow felt the need to, to share all of our opinions very broadly without understanding the consequences how, of how we might be alienating ourselves from others. So for example, maybe you stop uh, sharing that opinion for, that you have for a while. Maybe you just hold that to yourself. Wouldn't that be a crazy thought? Maybe you, maybe you don't post that on, on Instagram or Facebook, or maybe you don't, you know, like get into it in the comment section or whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe this is a wild idea. Maybe you hear a friend say something that you disagree with, but instead of like jumping in and like defending the second amendment or whatever, you just say, thank you for sharing your opinion. What, what would that do in a community like ours? I think it would bring a lot of peace. And what if instead of being unrestrained in all of our polarizing opinions here or there, what if instead we devoted ourselves to studying the gospel, living the gospel in, instead? I, I've been doing this uh, about 15 years now. And the reality is, is there are more books written on the gospel that you could absorb in your entire lifetime. And there is way more to go in your discipleship to Jesus as there is in mine as well. Um, what if we were the kinds of people, the kinds of stubborn people that always made it about Jesus? Have you heard what Jesus has to say about this? Have you, do you know what Jesus taught about that? Do you know what his heart was for that kind of person? And maybe we should, we should do the same. See, the one thing that we know for sure and we anchor ourselves to and we have unbending resolve for is that Jesus is king. And everything else is debatable and secondary. That's who we are as a people. The next thing to notice is this guy, Cephas, also known in the Bible as Peter. Now, is, is, is Peter, is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's, he's, a, he's a good guy. He, he's like a really good guy. He's Jesus' right-hand man. He's there for all of the miracles, all of the teachings. Not only that, he's also there for all of the ordinary moments that no one else even saw. Peter is there by Jesus' side, and he's learning from him this example every step of the way. And now, after Jesus rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, now Peter is like the de facto leader of the early church. He preached the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's already been imprisoned for his commitment to the gospel and refusal to give it up. And then he goes on to write a good portion of the New Testament. So Peter is a good, good guy. And Paul opposes him to his face. By the way, if you're going to oppose someone, first of all, try not to. Again, is it a secondary issue? Then we've already talked about that. But if you have to oppose someone, do it to their face. Because come on, like toxic, passive aggression and slander are just ruining relationships left and right. And you're not a toxic person. You actually want your, uh, your words and your actions to carry a, a healing meaning and to bring reconciliation and not to further divide. Nothing divides a community. Nothing is more toxic than slander and gossip. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, We will speak the truth in love. We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. 
I love this passage and I remind people of it often. In fact, I remind our staff team on a pretty regular basis that because of our church's demographic and sort of the culture and milieu that we live in, this is probably going to be one of our weaknesses. We are gonna be prone more than other places to talk negatively about one another behind their backs. That's what the Bible calls gossip or slander and there's some other words for it as well. But like the scripture says, we want to grow more and more like Jesus in every way. So when you have something against someone else, receive wise counsel from a trusted source. Ask for prayer and then go speak the truth and love to that person. One of the common questions that I get all the time is like, you know what, Andrew, you're right. I, I, I don't want to be a part of that problem. I don't want to be fostering a negative, toxic conversation about other people, especially over secondary matters behind their backs. I don't want to be passive aggressive. I want to speak the truth in love. However, what do I do when there are other people who are gossiping or slandering others around me? What am I supposed to do about that? So many of you have brought that to me at different points and different times. My daughter, who's 10 years old in fourth grade, she's now beginning to experience this in her life as well. And my answer and my response, my standard advice, is to just learn the response. Have you talked to this person about that? When someone is gossiping or slandering uh, another person, do you just, just say, have you talked to them about that? That is a direct question that has a yes or no answer. And generally speaking, the answer is no. And then you say, you know what? I am I'm here for you, and I'm going to pray for that conversation for you. When do you think you're going to go and have that? Because the reality is, is that if we allow this sort of toxic negativity to fester and not bring them up, we're going to end up um, doing the opposite of the intention of the scripture and what I know our hearts are. So talk to people this way. Say, have you brought this up to this or that person? No? Okay, I'm going to pray for you and that conversation. Direct, clear, loving communication is a gift the Proverbs say, upright citizens are good for a city and make it prosper. But the talk of the wicked tears it apart. It's uh, foolish to belittle one's neighbor and a sensible person keeps quiet. This is practical wisdom from the scripture. Whenever you can, just uh, forego or overlook transgression is another way that the Proverbs refer to it. Uh, I think the, 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 what the Proverbs are trying to teach us is that in, in, anyone can gossip. It's actually quite easy to do. Anyone can do it. It takes a person of character to stop themselves, take a moment of pause, slow down their mind and heart, and choose not to gossip and instead to speak the truth in love clear, direct, gracious, loving communication. This is the invitation of the scripture. Okay, so why is Paul opposing Peter? That's kind of where we're going next. Verse two kind of puts it into context for us. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
Okay, so it's pretty simple, actually, what's going on here. Peter was with the church in Antioch, and this was a city that was filled with Gentiles and all kinds of ethnicities, and when Paul went there um, to share the gospel, many different people believed and became Christians. And Peter, because he is a like very clear-headed, right-thinking gospel person, he has no issues eating with the Gentiles. If you know Peter's story, you know he was kind of late to the party on that because, again, a lot of Jewish Christians at the time were still sort of ingrained in those old lines of separation around race and discrimination and things like that. Um, But in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision where the Spirit tells him that all are now welcome in the family of God through Jesus. And then later in the same day, this messenger of appears to him or comes to him and uh, brings him to this Gentile guy's house named Cornelius. And he's there and he preaches the gospel to them, their whole house and a bunch of other people. And all of them hear the message about Jesus and they believe just like the Jewish Christians had believed. Now, um, again, it's sometimes hard for us to enter the world of the first century, but this was very controversial to a lot of those early frontline Jewish Christians. And they were really concerned, especially with the fact that Peter had eaten with the Gentile people. It's like, it was, it was, they were like, for some reason they were okay with him like sharing the gospel or whatever else, but they're like, I cannot believe that you even sat and ate with those Gentiles. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter, he is forced to defend himself. He, he, and so he does. He, in, in Acts chapter 11, he's back in Jerusalem with a lot of his Jewish buddies. And they're like, how could you do it? Like, how could you do that? And this is what he says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had fell on us at the beginning. And then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? It's so good. So in other words, this is what Jesus has been telling us to do all the time. We've just kind of missed the boat until now. The gospel isn't just for one exclusive in-group anymore. That's not who it's for. It's actually for everyone. And then he says, even if you don't buy that reasoning, which, by the way, I think it's really solid, good reasoning by Peter, but if you don't buy that reasoning, you can't argue with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit so that you you can't argue with that. So Peter is already on the record agreeing with Paul that everyone is now welcome in the family of God. And by the way, these are like the two heavy hitters in the world of theology at the time. Paul and Peter, they're agreeing on the content of the gospel and what it takes to be forgiven and sort of accepted by God. So as long as there are no Jews around, Peter is totally good with that. And he's willing to embrace those people as family and even uh, eat with them, as he should. But the tension arises when people from that skeptical group, that group of sort of religious elites who are unsure about the Gentiles standing in the church, when they arrive in Antioch too, that's where the tension begins to arise. The worlds collide, so to, so to speak. And suddenly Peter is not so sure anymore. And he's withdrawing from the Gentiles. He no longer eats with them. And he's only eating with the Jews. Now, if this were just like any social group, 
I guess you could make the argument, who, who, who cares? It's, it's kind of awkward. The two groups are so very different in almost every way. So these guys eat over here and this group of people eat over there. No big deal. But this isn't a social club. And this is the furthest thing from it. This is the one new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. And this is Jesus' right-hand guy, Peter, saying one thing about the gospel. Yeah, these Gentiles are sisters and brothers, but then acting a completely different way. You know what? This is getting weird. We can basically ignore them. And he's saying, you cannot do that. You, you, you cannot make that uh, leap. If you believe something and you say that it's true, you have to live it out. So this is the condensed, the condensed symbol. And as the de facto leader, Peter is creating the division, even though he, all, he knows better. He knows that the Gentiles are on equal ground and he knows that they're a part of the family. Okay, so let's keep reading. I promise all of this is gonna make a ton of sense as we finish out here. So uh, verse three says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So this is uh, pretty, pretty wild actually. Um, and it's huge. Peter's leadership was so influential that everyone uh, was willing to follow his lead and they were going along with it, even Barnabas, even Barnabas. And you remember, um, if you've been with us, that, that Barnabas is like Paul's likable, far more sensible counterpart. And he has been sort of largely been the guy who's been pushing for the acceptance of everyone who believes. He's saying, no, 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 we can't actually um, draw the same old lines that we always have. In Jesus, we're actually open to anyone who believes. But Peter's poll, his, his leadership even persuades Barnabas to kind of take the easy way out. The easy way out being, you know what, there's these people from Jerusalem who are here. And we really are so drastically different and we're not really mixing all that well. So, you know, why don't you guys go sit over there and we'll go sit over here and kind of like keep to ourselves. And Paul is like the only holdout. Yeah, I just picture him sitting in the corner going like, just like getting all fired up and getting ready to like handle some family business. So it's important to note that like eating and drinking is a sacred rhythm for the church, both then and now. Today we uh, take the Lord's Supper like we do every single week, the bread and the cup, in gatherings like this one with like a tiny little bit of juice and a little stale cracker and all of that. But back in the first century, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper over a proper dinner in house churches, which is so cool. In fact, I'd love, I think it'd be beautiful to get back to that as much as we possibly can. So the idea is with the Lord's Supper that we remember the Lord's death, how his sacrifice, how it frees us from slavery to sin and the kingdom of darkness, and then, of course, gives me, me life. But the other thing that the, the Lord's Supper does is it points us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is something that uh, Peter and, and, and Paul, as the heavy hitter theologians in the church at the time, would have been well versed in. And um, the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is, talks about a time when Jesus returns and when he establishes the new heaven and the new earth. And he celebrates, when he does that, he celebrates with a feast with his bride. He celebrates with his feast, over a feast with his bride. So that whole symbol is that we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. You are not 
the bride of Christ. We are collectively the bride of Christ. He doesn't have two brides. He's not a polygamist. He doesn't have one bride that he like um, is really proud of and then the bride that he sort of wants to push to the side. He's coming back for a unified and whole church. So withholding our devotion to one another and segregating over the old lines of ethnic tradition or whatever secondary identities we're willing to divide over, that represents a regressive and broken gospel. It's not anchored in the cross or in the return of Jesus. And Paul says we cannot actually let this stand. Also, uh, while this is going on, Paul is there sort of witnessing this hypocrisy. And he sees the group of Gentiles eating whatever they were bringing to the family meal or whatever. And then he sees the family of of Jews eating kosher. And again, it's not because eating kosher was good or bad in and of itself, but because of the negative peer pressure that Peter was facing. And Peter's like Peter, Jesus' right-hand guy, is the culprit. He's the one who's endorsing it and, 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 and really making sure that it happens. So again, Paul sees this condensed symbol and the integrity of the gospel and the future of the church is what's truly at stake. And so he stands up in front of everyone in typical Paul style and he says, Peter, you know, you know this is not the gospel. We have to like bring these two tables together and we have to embrace each other as family or this is not the gospel of Jesus. This is not the church of Jesus unless we do that. And From all indications, this was an intense moment. Again, Paul made sure that that was the case. But I strongly believe that this is actually not Paul making the problem worse and bringing a divisive argument. This is handling healthy family business. See, we can fail and afford to fail and be messy on all kinds of things, but this is the thing that we can't afford to be messy on or to get wrong. We have to um, keep our eyes on the gospel. We can't afford to lose sight of the gospel. This is, in other words, the hill that we die on. So every healthy family, every healthy family has hard chats. It's just, it's inescapable. It's how it works. And it's time for the church in the West, and that's us, to um, be open for some of these hard chats as well. We need to sort of reckon with our own division that we have allowed to happen around us. When Jesus came, he radically redrew the lines of family to include anyone who trusts in him, no matter how else we might be different. And the church in the West has unfortunately, like the early church, has shown that we are actually willing to divide and break fellowship over the old lines of separation. The easy low-hanging fruit is, of course, over race and politics, but also there are generational divides and all kinds of other secondary identities that we choose to divide over that are not the gospel. And the tragic thing is that so many of these things are so minor and so small that it really has no good reason to break up the church. By the way, this is probably one of the biggest questions that I get from people who are not people of faith, would not call themselves Christians. I don't actually have an answer for this one. I've got a lot of answers to questions, some of which people care about, most of which people do not. But this is a question that I don't have a good answer for, and that is, well, if you guys all say that you are following after Jesus, that he's your Lord and Savior, then how come you guys can't seem to get along? 
How come there are now over 14,000 evangelical denominations in America alone? Like, how is that possible? Like the Catholic Church back in the 1600s split from uh, Catholics to Protestants, and then since then there have been 14,000 at least splits after that. So how do you explain that? And the, the re- I don't actually, again, I don't really have a great answer for that. I think the real, almost honest answer that I can give is because we've been actually focusing on the wrong things and not Jesus and the gospel. We've had our sights on someone or something else. Now, I don't say that judgmentally. I really don't want to say that judgmentally because, again, the, the message of the story is that this can happen to the best of us, even Peter are capable, we are capable of losing our focus and being guilty of this kind of hypocrisy. And the reason for that is because these old lines of division, they are deeply ingrained in our minds and in our way of life, right? We are human. And as human, uh, as humans, uh, we're influenced by the world around us. We're influenced. We don't like to say that. We would like to think of ourselves as like very autonomous, free-thinking people. But the reality is that we are pretty, we're being pretty aggressively shaped by our culture and by our community. Um, one of my favorite case studies on this is hipster culture. Hipster culture, the whole premise is that, um, uh, that like we are like non-conforming to mainstream social and consumer norms. But have you seen like hipster haircuts and knit caps and like tortoise shell like like reading glasses recently? They look pretty similar to me. Like all of the non-conforming people all conform to one another. And I know this is like really serious business and you're not allowed to joke about hipster culture. And if you joke about it, you just don't get it and all of that. I completely understand all of that. But the reality is, is that In our culture, we cannot help because of how we are wired. We are shaped sometimes intentionally and other times unintentionally into the image of someone or something. And it could be hipster culture, but it could be just about anything else. So since we're influenced by the world around us, it means that just like Peter, we are vulnerable to peer pressure. The top five dumbest things I've ever done in my life have been as a result of peer pressure. When I was 19 years old, I was living in Hawaii, and we were on this hike together with a bunch of friends, and I downclimbed an 80-foot waterfall that was soaking wet, being pelted with water, and covered in green algae with no harness, no rope, no nothing, and it was all because I didn't want to look weak in front of the other guys, which is crazy. It's like one of the dumbest things I've ever done, and we made it down safely, barely, and then um, at the end, we got to the, back to the car, and I, and I admitted that I was terrified. And everyone else, except for one guy, was like, oh, yeah, I was completely terrified about that, too. We just didn't want to look weak in front of the other guys. So that's how crazy peer pressure can be. And again, Peter knew. He knew that the Gentiles were a part of the family. He knew that Jesus was coming back for a pure and unified bride from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But because he was being pressured by the in-group, his actions and his lifestyle betrayed his convictions. His lifestyle actions betrayed his convictions. And again, no judgment, but we do the same thing and we need to be reformed by Jesus as well. So if even the best can be lured into this kind of hypocrisy, saying that we believe that the church is one new family, but then actually living a completely different way, then how do we keep our focus on Jesus? 
And how do we then actually genuinely redevote ourselves to the mission? So this is what I want to kind of end on, is just a couple of reflections that hopefully will guide us into a way of wisdom and maturity. The first one is that we actually live in authentic community. My friend Evan was recently teaching on this passage as well, and he said that the dark side of peer pressure, pressure is tribalism, but the bright side of peer pressure is community. So men, talking to you guys out there, like the bad news is that we can be influenced to risk our lives because of our fragile male egos. That's something that happens to us. But the good news is that we can be influenced to practice the way of Jesus as well. If we devote ourselves to a community of people who are following after Jesus, that peer pressure can actually become a positive and life-giving thing. So your Riverbend community, which we're encouraging anyone and everyone to be a part of, we are finishing our basics class today after the gathering. We're launching a new community here in the next couple of weeks. Your Riverbend community exists not to just expand your friend group, although we hope you have a great time together and you enjoy going snowboarding and all the good stuff. But the goal is that we would actually orient ourselves around the way of Jesus together and live into his lifestyle, live into his lifestyle, and actually influence one another to grow into genuine spiritual maturity. So that's number one. We resist the peer pressure of secular culture being formed into the image of secular culture by actually entering into authentic community with other Jesus people. Next, we practice the sacred rhythm of table fellowship. That's just a fancy way of saying we eat and drink together. And we do. We raise a glass and we remember the death of Jesus and we anticipate his return together. This is a beautiful thing. And we do this not as a homogenous group that's basically all the same. We do this as people who are different and diverse and have a range of personalities and theological leanings and life stories and backgrounds and all of the stuff. And as we do that together, eating and drinking, it, it is sacred. It's sacred because we actually take part in the Lord's Supper we remember what Jesus has done and we actually picture in our mind's eye the beauty of what's coming in the new creation. So again, I, I would just say like, man, just start now. Just invite people over for dinner tonight. There's some really cool people sitting around you right now and they would love the chance to like hang out and to go grab food or come over to your place for dinner. Just go ahead and do that. Just do it, it's easy. Uh, and finally, last, we submit ourselves to others. We submit ourselves to others. Every healthy family has tough chats. It's just how it goes. Paul needed correction at times. Peter needed correction in this case. And I believe that the sign, or one of the signs of a healthy, wise, mature Jesus person is your willingness to be led. I'm fortunate to know many incredible leaders, really amazing people that I'm grateful to learn from. One of the hallmarks of really genuine, mature, and wise leaders are that they are willing to be led. I'm always um, sad when I see young people, anyone really, but especially young people, who feel that they already know everything that they need to know, um, in life and that feel really self-satisfied with their own reasoning and their own understanding, particularly with, with the scriptures, but really with wisdom and the rest of life as well. 
But remember, the scriptures say that in the abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. We actually need one another. We need to be subject to one another. We need to submit to one another. And that, that produces more humility. It's this cycle. It's this life-generating cycle that brings more humility. A willingness to learn from and be subject to others is a life-giving cycle. Now, I have been um, following after Jesus for about 17 years now, which is half my life, which is kind of cool. I've been in the church my entire life, uh, but it wasn't until I was 17 that I actually trusted in him and began walking faithfully in, in the way of Jesus. I, I still have a long ways to go. I'm certainly nowhere um, special or whatever, but I'm way more confident in Jesus today than I have ever been. Even with everything that's been going on, I'm way more confident in Jesus than I've ever been. And since my early childhood, mostly because of like the influence of my, my dad, my, my, uh, my dad, Lewis. Um, I've, I've had like this network of, of, of family and pastors and mentors and, and peers that have guided me through life and corrected me when necessary. And by the way, I have needed a lot of correction over the years. I've needed a lot of it. And there was a time where I really resisted that kind of correction. I did not want it. It's not a comfortable thing, like I've said. But I'm not more autonomous today than I was in my teens and early 20s. I'm actually more dependent on my mentors ever than ever before. I would, I've outgrown some mentors. We've kind of moved around the state a little bit. So there's different people now than there was when I was growing up or whatever. But I would never consider growing old without mentors. My primary mentor right now is 70 years old. He's been a pastor like 45 plus years. He's memorized a massive amount of scripture. He's led incredible movements where thousands of people have come to Christ. He's done a lot of really incredible things. And he has a mentor who's 10 years in front of him, even at age 71. And when he comes here, which he was here last week, I peppered him with like three hours worth of questions and I have a lot to learn. But then he said, okay, now, what about you? What do you have to say about what's going on in my life and story? Which is just remarkable to me that at that age, with that level of wisdom and experience, he's still teachable. I want to be that kind of person. In fact, I don't want to even consider growing old without submitting myself one to another. It's a life-giving, healthy cycle. So this is what we want to do. We want to live in authentic community. We want to eat and drink together as a sacred practice. And we want to submit ourselves to others. That's the beginning of creating the conditions in our life to be the kinds of people who can make peace and not divide over things that are secondary. Will you please stand with me and let's pray. You guys, this is an honor, genuinely an honor for me to be pastoring here and to unfold the scriptures with you. And I know that I, I kinda, kinda get on with it, you know, and really get after it with y'all. And, um, and it's coming from a sincere place. And I genuinely want to see our community thriving in all of the ways that we're talking about here. The gospel is what's at stake. The future of the church is what's at stake. When you come and join us for pre-gathering prayer or prayer on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, or Thursdays, we, we, we like to say that we are content in the presence of God and we love what God is doing but in the same way, we're, we're not content because we want to see God do a new and powerful and great work. We want to see him renew the incredible things he's done in the past and bring awakening to our city. I've been saying that for six years. Some of you have been hearing me say that for six long years. But we are just getting started praying the kingdom come. 
And we want to invite you to come and join us because we believe that God is up to something remarkable and we get to be a part of it. We're being called into active participants in, in this work. So um, as we pray, I just want to open us up to the possibility that maybe the pandemic or something like the pandemic has pulled your focus off of Jesus and off of the gospel. Let's not even bother judging it. It's a, it, it happened to Peter. It can happen to us. No one's being judged here at all. But this is our moment. This is our opportunity. You know what? I have been making secondary issues more primary. I have been sharing my opinions about things that probably don't matter. Maybe I've alienated people that I'm not even fully aware of. Or maybe I'm carrying some kind of subconscious thing that prevents me from being truly open and welcoming and inclusive to anyone who's in the family of God. And I want to start breaking down those things today. And I want to start living in the way of the kingdom. I don't want those old lines that are ingrained in me to be with me forever. I want to actually open myself up in the way of Jesus to the radical open lines that he's drawn for anyone who trusts in him. No matter how different we are otherwise, we are united in Christ and that's where we want to go as a people. So God, we pray that in today. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your friendship. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that before we were seeking after you, you found us and sought after us. And now as we devote ourselves to you now, we just want to say we want to make your priority our priority. And we want all of the, the things that, that need to kind of fall away that have been getting way too much airtime in our heads, <laughs> has been uh, occupying way too much of our attention lately. And we want to give all of that focus and attention back to you in the name of Jesus. So you guys, as we sing, we want to encourage you to respond. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. This is an ancient prayer of the church that's been turned into this beautiful hymn. So we sing it out as an expression of faith that what Jesus has said and promised, he's able to perform, he's able to do. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to come to the table of communion. This is a beautiful moment, you guys, where we celebrate what Jesus has done, and then we look ahead to that marriage supper, the time in the new creation when God sets up his rule and reign. So God, we just are eager for that moment. We're eager to celebrate that with you. So during the next song, we're going to grab the bread and the cup and come back to our seats and take it together as one church. We're also opening the prayer wall. If you need prayer for any reason, um, if there, you are uh, sick and need healing, or if you're emotionally sick and need healing, or if there's something that was said during the message today or during our time of prayer singing that stuck out to you and you just want to press into, and our people would love to pray for you. Jesus, all of this is for you. We celebrate your name freely, and we love you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Let's sing.